Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. You can find us online at independent.org. That's I N D Y P E N D E N T dot O R G for all our latest coverage. I'm joined this evening by my co-host, Amr Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. We have another amazing show in store today. In our first segment, we'll learn more about a lawsuit that was filed last week by Muhammad Aziz. He was convicted in 1966 of murdering Malcolm X, only to be exonerated in 2021, 55 years later, when new evidence came out in the case. He's seeking $40 million in damages, and he's seeking to use the case to fully expose the FBI's role in Malcolm X's assassination. We will also speak with radical theater creator Ash Marinaccio about plans tomorrow around the world, including here in New York, to stage readings of the Gaza Chronicles, a nonfiction play that brings to life the voices and the children of Gaza. And later in the show, we'll take listener call-ins. Before we continue, a reminder that today is Giving Tuesday, the day when millions of Americans give to their favorite nonprofit organizations, including this radio station. Giving Tuesday became popular in the past decade as a counterpoint to Black Friday, the official starting day of the holiday shopping season, when American consumers flood shopping malls starting at 12 a.m. on Thanksgiving in search of lots of stuff to buy. But nobody can buy WBAI 99.5 FM belongs to its listeners. But if we don't bring in enough money to pay our bills. Well, we could lose the station. And the number to call to do that is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Or you can go online to give the number to WBAI.org. That's give numeral to WBAI.org. And sign up to become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month or make a generous one-time contribution. Again, the phone number is 212-209-2950. Yes, uh, 212-209-2950. The other number, 212-209-2877, is our listener call-in number, which uh, we will be uh, using later in the show. Um, and we will be mentioning uh, Giving Tuesday and the opportunities to uh, support WBAI a couple more times during the show. But now we turn to our first segment. In 1966, Muhammad Aziz was convicted of killing Malcolm X the previous year. Aziz spent decades in prison. He was exonerated 55 years later in 2021 after new evidence came out showing that the FBI had gone to extraordinary lengths to conceal the role of the real killer. Aziz's lawsuit seeks not only monetary damages, but also seeks to expose once and for all what the government's role was in killing one of the most important black leaders of the 20th century. Earlier today, we spoke with the Indies criminal justice correspondent, Ted Ham, who recently wrote an article titled, titled Man Falsely Convicted of Mal Malcolm X's Murder Files Groundbreaking Lawsuit to Expose FBI's COINTELPRO Abuses. Ted, uh, for starters, uh, can you tell us who Muhammad Aziz is, his ties to the Malcolm X case, and how he came to be wrongfully incarcerated for many decades? Sure. Um, Aziz was a member of the 
Nation of Islam Harlem uh, Mosque. And in 1965, February of 1965, uh, Malcolm X was assassinated. And um, then um, Aziz was uh, implicated, um, even though he apparently was home in, in, in the Bronx at the time of the Sunday afternoon murder. Uh, so um, he and two others went to trial. Talmadge Hare um, is the, the, the person who admitted at trial to killing, being one of the shooters, at least, of Malcolm X. Uh, and he exonerated, he uh, said that the other two who were on trial with him were innocent of the, uh, the, the, the murder. But that went nowhere. They were they were using a um, a conspiracy charge to say they were acting in concert uh, to participate in the murder. So it ended up that the, uh, one of the real killers uh, was set, was convicted along with two people who were then exonerated ultimately. And Ted, tell us about the $40 million lawsuit that Aziz and his lawyer recently filed and what they're hoping to accomplish with it. Sure. So the lawsuit is aimed at, uh, obviously, um, compensation for the uh, two decades in prison that uh, Aziz spent, uh, along with um, the other recently exonerated figure, uh, who's uh, now deceased, Khalil Islam. Um, but they um, are asking for damages, um, you know, based on the fact that that many years of in prison plus uh, the reputation of being the murderer after getting out and killing one of the most uh, revered figures of the late 20th century um, and so forth that, you know, that obviously uh, uh, took its toll on what what Aziz could do coming out of prison. But that's uh, one part of the lawsuit. But then the other part is, is analyzing what it calls the pattern and practice of Pro, the FBI's program of infiltrating radical groups, not exclusively black radical groups in the 1960s, but certainly one, that, that was one of their main targets. And the, it's ra- the lawsuit is raising serious questions about the FBI's role in uh, Malcolm X's assassination. Right, right. And, uh, can you talk about uh, the inf- how information uh, in this case came to light? Uh, in the past decade uh, that forced then Manhattan DA uh, Cyrus Vance Jr. Uh, to overturn uh, Aziz's conviction. And also, uh, can you talk about uh, a man named uh, William Bradley, who uh, many people think was one of the uh, assassins and, and why the FBI went to such great length uh, to conceal uh, his identity and his role uh, in these events to the point that Aziz essentially was one of the people who had to take the fall instead. Right. Let me do that in reverse order uh, because the, those things connect, uh, obviously. That uh, Bradley was one of five members of the Newark Mosque of the Nation of Islam who uh, were implicated in the murder. Three as gunmen, including Bradley, the lead gunman with a, a shotgun, um, and uh, two others, including Tom Chair, 
uh, the guy that I mentioned who went to trial and was convicted. Um, but then there were two more who set off a commotion in the ballroom that day um, that helped to create the chaos that allowed for the murder to take place. Uh, so Bradley um, then went free, um, wasn't implicated at the time, and uh, subsequently he um, and the FBI went out of their way to prevent Bradley's name from surfacing at the time of the the murder was in 1965. The trial was in 1966. They were preventing any witness statements that implicated Bradley from reaching the Manhattan DA prosecutors handling the case. Um, so they were basically protecting Bradley. He had been on the radar for a few years prior at least. And then um, a few years later, he participated in an armed bank robbery in Livingston, New Jersey. Uh, his accomplice got t- 25 years, but Bradley went free after the Department of Justice intervened. So there was uh, <laughs> the obvious implication that he was working with the FBI. Um, and so now, now that sort of um, that his role was on the back burner until a researcher, independent researcher named Abdur Rahman Mohammed. Uh, he's a guy who lives in D.C. for a long time, was a tour tour bus tour guide, uh, a tour bus driver. Um, he is portrayed in the uh, documentary "Who Killed Malcolm X," uh, mentioned the, the 2020 uh, Netflix series. And he really um, is the one who helped advance this um, narrative that it, that Bradley was, in fact, working for uh, the FBI, right? So um, in, once that that series came out, that is what sparked uh, Cy Vance, who was the Manhattan DA at the time, uh, to open an investigation uh, along with um, Aziz's lawyer, David Channings. Right. And and just for people who, who may not have as much familiarity with the, the Malcolm X uh, assassination, can you talk, talk a little bit about uh, why uh, uh, both uh, uh, folks or some of the people around the nation of Islam uh, had it in uh, for Malcolm X, as well as uh, obviously uh, the government? Uh, but uh, I mean, Malcolm X was a, a leading figure in the nation of Islam, a top lieutenant to uh, the founder of the group, Elijah Muhammad. Um, but he had a falling out, right? And he kind of became a, a marked man. Sure. And uh, he had, Malcolm X had um, been accused by Elijah Muhammad of betrayal, because not just for breaking from, with him, but also for helping reveal uh, Elijah Muhammad's uh, children that he had fathered out of wedlock uh, and so forth. So he was creating significant um Embarrassment for for Net, uh, for Elijah Muhammad and so forth. So it was always rumored that uh, you know Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam played a role in the assassination. And and, and as I said, the five uh, people involved in the killing were from the the Newark Mosque. So you know, yet, yes, it seems that they are interwoven. You know, that there's the role of the NYPD. Uh, that's uh, their participation in um, at the time of the assassination. Uh, and then there's the FBI. So um, there's a lot of different players in this. But what this lawsuit is doing is putting the focus on the FBI. So it's it's sort of following 
the lead for, of Abdul Rahman Muhammad and what he was saying uh, that William Bradley was likely working as an informant for them. Uh, and now they're, this, this lawsuit is pursuing that and we'll, we'll see how far it gets. And why, Ted, was the government so interested in Malcolm X? And why did they go to such a great length to conceal the identity of his actual killers? Whatever, uh, he didn't like black radicals of any kind. Um, and they, you know, perhaps their it, it, relationships with uh, Nation of Islam. I don't know. You know, that, that all needs to be it needs to be more light shed on that. Um, but he certainly was going out of his way, J. Edgar Hoover was, to uh, prevent any inquiry or knowledge uh, of what role that William Bradley was playing. So, uh, you know, they they were trying to snuff out radicals. Malcolm X was obviously such a dynamic, charismatic figure who was now um, preaching uh, uh form of peace, right? I mean, he was now the, the transformed Malcolm X figurehead um, that you know, potentially could even be more uh, gal- galvanizing for the black population and, and stir- certainly, you know, addressing poverty in Harlem and elsewhere uh, just was a threat to the status quo. Right. He had sort of broken with sort of the narrow uh, uh, confines of the nation of Islam and was... Uh, looking to reach a, a broader audience. Um, and, and Ted, uh, last of all, uh, where do you think things uh, might go from here with this, uh, this lawsuit and its attempts to expose uh, what happened over 50 years ago? It's, you know, it's difficult to say that the, the obviously the government and uh, now it's the Biden administration. This will tra- probably drag on, and we don't know what the, which who's taking over in the next election. Uh, but um, you know, the lawyers can st- just try to stretch it out and, and prevent the discovery or, or limit the discovery, so that not much of the FBI's role is called into question. That's the real challenge of the lawsuit: is saying, you know, let's look at Quintel Pro, let's look at the FBI. Uh, shine the light and put them under the microscope. And obviously that's not in um, the long term. Bureaucrats don't see it that way. That's they don't, they don't like to shed light on things, but you know, it's possible to be kind of, it sort of depends on who the judge is and uh, some other variables. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there for now, but uh, independence, Ted Ham recently wrote a, the article titled Man Falsely Convicted of Malcolm X's Murder Files Groundbreaking Lawsuit to Expose FBI's COINTELPRO Abuses on Independent.org. Ted, thanks once again for joining us on the show. Thanks, thanks Ted. Take care. That was independent investigative criminal reporter Ted Ham speaking with us earlier, and we'll be back after a short break. What a difference a day made Twenty-four little hours What the sun and the flowers Mm, Will 
difference a day makes There's a rainbow before me That was What a Difference a Day Makes by Dinah Washington, one of Malcolm X's favorites. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, Ambika Gurian, joined by my co-host, John Tarleton. And uh, as we reminded you earlier, today is Giving Tuesday, an alternative to Black Friday. So for those of you who didn't hit the malls um, on Thanksgiving night and you want to keep your favorite station on the air, please do think of us, the phone number to give is 212-209-2950. Again, it's 212-209-2950 or pull out the plastic, go online at www.give, the number two, wbai.org. That's give numeral two, wbai.org. That's right. You can call 212-209-2950 or go to uh, www.give number two wbai.org and when you give on giving tuesday to wbai you not only give to a radio station uh, you make it possible for uh, everyone who listens to wbai to be able to continue listening uh, this station has bills to pay for its uh, uh, transmitter uh, atop of uh, four times square uh, for an office uh, for uh, salaries for it's very uh, small staff that keeps the whole thing uh, running. And, uh, you know, we can only do it with, with your support. And again, not everybody uh, listening may be able to send in a donation. So if you have a little extra when you give on Giving Tuesday, you're giving to, again, everybody who wants to listen to the station but maybe doesn't have the uh, money right now to send in a donation. But if you have extra, uh, you can uh, become a WBAI buddy today for as little as $10 a month, or send in a generous uh, donation. Again, you know, WBAI has been on the air for 63 years because of supporters like yourself. It makes it possible for us to air the Independent News Hour and so much other great programming. And with that, we're going to turn uh, to our next uh, segment, where we're going to uh, look at the war in Gaza through the, the prism of the arts. Uh, artists also have something to say about th- this war and who's being affected by it. Um, so tomorrow, uh, radical theaters around the world will be staging the Gaza Chronicles, a nonfiction play featuring the voices of Gaza's yeah. children, sure. describing their lives as they are lived under Israeli blockade and siege. The play was created over a decade ago by the Palestinian-led Ashtar Theater, which is also the group that is leading tomorrow's effort to stage this play around the world. Joining us now is Ash Marinaccio. She was the co-founder and artistic director from 2008 to 2016 at Girl Be Heard, a youth ensemble that created original performances around pressing social justice issues. Since 2016, she has been working on a Ph.D. in theater and performance at the CUNY Graduate Center with a focus on theater in uh, conflict zones. Uh, she herself has traveled twice uh, to the occupied West Bank in Palestine, uh, where she has collaborated with Ash- the Ashtar Theater on their work. And uh, Ash, welcome to WBAI Radio. 
Hi, John. Hi, Amba. So excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we, we're really excited about what's in the store for tomorrow. But uh, first of all, uh, just a little while ago, uh, you were over at a protest at the Egyptian consulate over near the United Nations where all sorts of uh, uh, anti-war pro-peace groups uh, were on hand uh, urging the Egyptian government to open uh, the one crossing into uh, Gaza at Rafah that is not controlled by the Israelis. Uh, I believe we have a, a clip from the protest that we can play, and then we want to hear real quickly from you what you saw over there. From the river to the sea, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. All right, that was uh, people chanting outside the Egyptian consulate at 48th and 1st Avenue about an hour ago. Uh, Ash, uh, when they were talking about Sisi, who were they referring to and uh, what is it they want him to do? So they were calling upon the Egyptian president to... um to stop normalizing relationship, their relationship with Israel and stop normalizing the occupation to open up the Rafa border and to, uh, provide, um, relief and support to the people of Gaza and Palestine. Great. And, and, um, so let's, let's turn to tomorrow with this, uh, a day of uh, global action for staging, uh, the Gaza, uh, chronicles. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what's in store uh, for tomorrow and what exactly is in this play? Absolutely. So uh, the Gaza Monologues uh, was created by the Ashtar Theater in uh, 2010, and it was a collaboration with Ashtar's um, organization, the Artistic Director in the West Bank, and their group in Gaza. And they have a collective of they had a collective of young people. Um, write and create monologues about their experiences living in Gaza under the siege in 2010. And they've performed these monologues so far. Uh, 2000 young people around the world have performed these monologues in theaters and in schools and in refugee camps. Uh, there were performances at the UN. They've been used as um, tools of activism, but also tools um for theater, for theater practitioners to raise the uh, awareness and garner support for Palestine and for the children in Gaza, and you know, unfortunately, these were these were written in 2010, but since then, these monologues are still quite relevant. Um, I have a, an excerpt of one of the monologues with me, if if you'd like me to share that. Um, yes, please. Yeah. This is um, Yasmin Jarur, and um, she was born in 1996. And to read an excerpt of her work, I hear that in other countries, childhood is sacred and children live their lives without problems and fear. But Gaza's children are forgotten and outside the picture. They're the ones who feel the injustice the most because society treats them like they're not kids. When it wants it, it makes them adults. And when it wants, it returns them to being children. And most people deal with them like they're only bodies, not minds. When I see a child peddling in the street or working in a shop, 
I imagine how children of the world are playing, resting, and feeling safe. Honestly, my heart breaks for them, and sometimes I cry. So this was written in uh, 2010, and, you know, unfortunately, we can see this now with um, the way that the children of Gaza are portrayed in mainstream media, that, you know, um, children in Gaza are not seen as children, right? We can see this even in the release of the uh, hostages and the prisoners, um, uh, the Palestinian hostages and prisoners in Israeli prisons, that we don't, our media does not talk about them like they're children. Our media uses words to dehumanize them, um, using words like, oh, teenagers, prisoners, um, that, that, you know, inmates and detainees, right? So, um, the work of the Gaza monologues is to really humanize. And I think where a theater is a tool, a useful tool in, um, in activism, um, the work is to humanize and to put, uh, faces and names on statistics and some of the jargon and buzzwords that we hear every day um, in our mainstream media. Uh, thanks, Ash, for sharing that. Um, the monologue you shared makes me think of a poem um, from Tahseen Ahmad, one of the three boys that was shot in Vermont, a Palestinian um, American uh, young uh, college students. And he's in the sixth grade in 2015 saying, you know, I'd rather be deaf than have these ears that hear the bombing every day. So absolutely. Um, and glad that you're doing that. But, you know, I want to talk about the fact that Ashtar Theater is sort of a, one of the many pillars of uh, Palestinian uh, culture. And um, if you could just talk a bit about that, about um, how uh, they relate, you know, their theater group to the Palestinian um, existence a little bit more and about to the extent that, you know, the culture that is there and the culture that, you know, needs to be preserved. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Palestine has a thriving theater culture. There are um, old theaters. There are new theaters. Um, Ashtar Theater was founded by Edward Mualam and Iman Awun in 1991. And it's a, a youth theater um, they found that this is the first youth theater in the West Bank, but both Edward and um, Iman were part of the Al-Hakawadi Theater and, um, you know, bring the longstanding tradition of the Hakawadi, the storyteller, and um, Palestinian theater to their work. In addition to in working in collaboration with um, numerous other arts groups, one of um, Ashtar's one of the the key work of Ashtar is that they also collaborate. They collaborate with theaters around Palestine, throughout Palestine, um, such as the Freedom Theater, um, our Rawad for the Arts, um, Al-Qasaba, um, theaters in the North, theaters in the South, throughout the West Bank. And then also they collaborate with theaters internationally. They've hosted um, youth theaters from around the world in their International Youth Theater Festival, which brings young people uh, to the West Bank to perform and also to share to share their own performances, but also to uh, share in Palestinian theater culture and to learn about theater in Palestine and what theater does and the unique attributes of Palestinian art and theater Um it's a really special, it's a special and unique program. And um, like everything else with the arts, the arts helps to keep culture alive. It helps to um, keep history alive. Um, it helps us to remember that Palestine 
um, you know, is Palestinian culture is living and in, is active and is now. And there is plenty of joy and plenty of um, the, there's joy and resistance and there's celebration in resistance. And by, um, you know, calling on international collaborators to be part of this, um, it helps us all to, you know, come together and to support Palestine and the incredible artistic work that's coming out of the region. Right. And can you tell us uh, some of the venues where the Gaza Chronicles will be performed here in New York tomorrow? Sure. Um, well, it's, it's the Gaza monologues. Sorry. Um, no, so it's sorry. totally fine. Um, the Gaza monologues right now, there are three, I, I know three performances in person and there's also virtual performances as well. So, um, there'll be a performance tomorrow at the people's forum at seven o'clock. There's also a performance that's at 320 West 37th Street, and that performance will also be live streamed. So you can go on the People's Forum website and uh, look for that. There's also a performance at Earth Church tomorrow at seven o'clock. Um, that's in the East Village with Reverend Billy, and that's also produced with, um, by CUNY for Palestine. Um, there's a performance in Brooklyn, um, at a library in Brooklyn. Uh, there's a performance in Montclair, New Jersey, a street performance on the corner of Church Street and Bloomfield Avenue. And there are two performances um, that I know of right now on the radio, 8-Ball Radio at 6 p.m. tomorrow and the People's Mic Public Intervention. And if folks are listening, I know that was a mouthful, but if folks who are listening would like more information about the various performances and join in either in person or um, via one of the live stream performances, which are happening around the country, by the way, um, around the world. So I just I just named the performances that are happening in New York and New Jersey, the tri-state area. But um, these are happening all over the U.S. Um, do log on to Ashtar Theater's um, their Instagram, which is Ashtar Theater, A-S-H-T-A-R-T-H-E-A-T-R-E. Um, and connect that way. You can also search for the Gaza monologues. Um, Ashtar will be live streaming everything and sharing everything. So it's a global movement and it's a global movement that, um, the Ashtar theater has, um, has called us to be part of. And, you know, as a theater practitioner and, um, a culture maker, it's an honor to, to be part of it. And it's an honor to work in collaboration with the other artists and activists who've been, um, who are putting this together as well. Right. And what, what are some of your personal memory, memories of collaborating with Ashtar in your trips to the West Bank? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Ashtar, we, we've done many collaborations. We've done, I, I've loved bringing, um, young people to Palestine. Um, that's pretty, that's particularly moving because all of the young people who've been on the delegations with us to perform in the West Bank have, um, become very active in advocating for, um, for Palestine, for Palestinian theater. And it's also special to see because, you know, it's youth companies, youth theater from around the world. And just see the importance of youth theater and how it's um, provided a platform and elevated in areas of the other areas of the world. It's it's really special because it's something that um, I wouldn't say is uh, <laughs> as elevated here in the U.S. So that's particularly inspiring. There's also um, 
So we worked in collaboration with the Eagle Project, which is an indigenous performing arts group here in the United States. Um, it's the um, Nanakook, Nanakook, Lenny Lenape led arts um, organization in creating um, a forum theater piece, which is an interactive theater piece between Native Americans and Palestinians. We had um, Iman and the Ashtar Theater come here to New York to work on that. And um, that piece was addressing violence against women in the indigenous community. And then um, Ashtar debuted um, this play is Native Made, which is a solo performance by Obalanya Tet, the um, artistic director of Ashtar Theater, um, which deals with the erasure of indigenous, um, with in, in, the erasure of um, Nanakook Lenny Lenape identity in New Jersey. And um, through that process, we uh, discovered the parallels between um, indigenous erasure um, in the U.S. and in Palestine, which, um, you know, we used the theater process to raise to raise awareness of that and to help audiences draw those connections as well. And I think something that's particularly exciting about uh, the work that Ashtar is doing is the um, drawing these connections between indigenous struggles universally. And I know that that's um, that's important to their work and also important um, to work here as well. And, and that's, you know, something that we intend to continue doing. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Ash, that's, um, that's important. Uh, talk just in our, with our, in our last question about, you know, the, well, how much do you think that art is sort of necessary in a political movement and how necessary is it to sort of be able to permeate into a culture in that way, um, in order to gain momentum? Or is I, it? Oh, yeah, I know. Absolutely. And I think Ashtar is showing us this, right? Like we're, um, I'll be honest, there are moments where personally as an artist, I'm like, is this, does this even matter? Right? Like I, um, been, I've been asking that a lot, especially these past weeks in, um, grappling with just the, the, the horror of looking at what's happening in Gaza. Um, but Ashtar Theater is reminding us that, you know, it, we can come together as artists and build this global movement of solidarity. And this work happens in our community and we have to go back to our communities and do this work and mobilize our communities and collaborate with other communities. And, and I think, you know, Ashtar is a, a leader in, in not only, um, preaching that, but in showing that as well, like the Gaza monologues, they put this call out. I think a few weeks ago, asking people for tomorrow, which is the International Day of Solidarity with Palestine, um, asking communities to to share their to share the Gaza monologues. And since then, you know, this has turned into a global movement, and we're seeing artists coming out of you know communities across the United States, across the world, um, wanting to make pieces that reflect that they're community but also uh talk about palestine and talk about palestine with um with their um with their friends and family so um yes art is important and theater is important and it matters and you know live theater it matters now um more than ever and you know that sounds cliche but um you know we're grateful to ashtar to um remind us of that well, thank you so much for joining us, Ash Marinaccio, who will be performing as a part of the Palestine. Is it the Palestine? I'm so sorry. Is it the Gaza monologues? Gaza monologues, yes. 
so embarrassed. The guys on monologues, I clearly don't have my script in front of me. The guys on monologues tomorrow will happening internationally. Um, as a part of, you know, the movement to free Palestine, you can find that on Ashtar Theater on Instagram. That's at A-S-H-T-A-R-T-H-E-A-T-R-E on Instagram or probably by Googling Gaza Monologues Ashtar Theater. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Have a good night. We're going to go to a short break, and we'll be right back. or We Shall Return by Feruz. I am Ambagir Garian, and you are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. I am here with my co-host, John Tarleton, and yeah. I'm happy to be with him. Yeah, uh, happy to be here with you again, Amba. Uh, it's so great we get to do this show almost every week on WBAI, and that's made possible by our listeners who donate to this station and help keep it on the air. We've mentioned it a couple of times uh, during the show, but reminder, it's Giving Tuesday. What better time uh, to pitch in and help keep this station on the air? You can call 212-209-2950. Again, 212-209-2950, or you can go online to give number 2 wbaiorg You can become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month, uh, or you can make a generous one-time contribution, $50, $100, $200, if you're up for it. Uh, you know, we're all good. You know, we're all told we have to do tons of uh, Christmas shopping or holiday shopping at this time of year. But uh, however we approach that, uh, if we have uh, some extra money in our pocket, we should, you know, support uh, worthy uh, movement organizations uh, like WBAI, like the Independent, and uh, many others that are out there uh, trying to make the world a better place. Yeah, and you know, I mix it up with my Christmas giving. Well, my family celebrates Christmas, but with my holiday giving, 
some years I make gifts, some years I buy gifts, some years I give people gifts that are actually gifts <laughs> to groups that need them. So there's different ways you can do it, you know, if you're working with a finite budget, with which many of us are. And I think that's something that's so um, important about giving to, well, specifically WBAI, is that we're maintaining the legacy of the left here in New York. As uh, some of you may know, WBAI has been on the air for 63 years. And um the the presence of the left in New York has gone up and down since then, and now we have a young, new, surging left that uses a lot of social media. But as a young member of that, I think it's very important to maintain the radio and maintain these connections between generations and the and the um, connection to public, you know, uh, access, which is the radio. So please keep us. On the air, we are the only fully independent news radio station in New York, in the New York region. You can help do so by calling the phone number 212-209-2950. Again, that's 212-209-2950. Or go online to give the number to WBAI.org. That's give the number to WBAI.org. Please keep us on the air. As we all know, Rent is expensive and money is tight. So 212-209-2950. Give number 2WBAI.org on Giving Tuesday. Whatever you can give, thank you. Right. And, and when you give, you not only keep the independent news hour on the air, but other great programs, including uh, a whole host of shows that will be coming on the air after us this evening on WBAI, Democracy Now!, a uh, half-hour edition from 6 to 6.30, Interpersonal Update with Harriet Fraud-Wolf at 6.30, Revolutions Per Minute, the uh, NYC uh, Democratic Socialists of America weekly show, 7 to 8 p.m. We'll have special programming from 8 to 9 p.m., Cat Radio Cafe from 9 to 10, and The Sweet Spot from 10 p.m. to midnight. And in our uh, final 10 minutes or so, we certainly uh, welcome hearing from uh, listeners with anything you want to comment about, whether it's uh, from our earlier segments where we were talking about the a lawsuit um, by the man who was falsely convicted of killing Malcolm X, uh, the, the last segment we had on art in Gaza, or anything else you have on your mind, that number is 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. Uh, we'd uh, love to hear from you. And, uh, Meanwhile, uh, Amit, you've been out in the streets, uh, continuing to follow the, the surging, uh, anti-war movement. Uh, you want to, uh, update us on some of the, uh, action you saw over the weekend? Yeah, absolutely. So there have been, um, actions, uh, continuing across New York, the country and the world, um, you know, ever since the, well, since October 7th, since October 8th, whatever. Um, and one group that's been holding a lot of them, as we know, is within our lifetime, Palestine. Um, it's a about 10 year old group out of Bay Ridge, um, founded by young Palestinians. And, uh, they had their 25th protest on Saturday, uh, since they've had a couple more. Um, and so we'll listen to a thought from Nardine Kiswani of within our lifetime at Columbus Circle on November 26th, which was Saturday, uh, for their 25th protest, which they did, um, in coalition with this Bronx-based group called Decolonize This Place. Um, and so they were all in front of, uh, Columbus Circle, had a rally, and then, uh, 
marched over to the Museum of National History and decolonized this place, led an anti-colonial tour of the museum. But let's go now to Nardine Kaswani speaking at Columbus Circle for the protest. Yes, all hostages should be released. That includes the 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza who have been held hostage. Who have been held hostage for the last 17 years. All of the Palestinian prisoners who have been released in this exchange, all of them are either children or women. Most of them are young children, are still young boys. Only 33 adult women were released. Everyone else is a child. And this just goes to show what they have been fighting for for from the beginning. Why does Israel have Palestinian children in prison? Why do Palestinians get 20 years for throwing stones? That was Nardine Kwaswani speaking from Within Our Lifetime Palestine uh, at Columbus Circle on November 26th. And uh, that was sort of in the context of this truce between Israel and Gaza. That was on the third day of the truce. Um, every day the truce extends 10 uh, Israeli hostages traded for uh, 30 or a three to one ratio um, of uh, Palestinian prisoners, of which there are thousands in um, in Israel. But we have a caller holding. So caller, welcome to the show. Uh, tell us your name or what we can call you and where you're calling from. You can call me anything but late for dinner. This is Russell. I'd like to ask Russell, hi, Russell, and speak up if you can. We really can't hear you very well. I'll try and speak a little louder. John, Thank you. I asked you, I asked you on when you were on with King Downey, a very great show, uh, if you're going to explore in the next issue about friendly fire from the IDF and Israeli police killing most of the Israelis on October 7th. I find the numbers that 1,400 Hamas fighters and 1,400 Israeli fighters died that day, the original numbers. That was suspect from the beginning, and now we found that it was only 200 fighters. Those people were killed by Israelis, and um, I think that by peddling atrocities, we're contributing to the Israeli genocide, and I think you should refer to the Palestinians as detainees. One last thing, I'd like to ask you, John, if you think Farrakhan was involved in the assassination of Malcolm X. Thanks very much, kids. Did you get that, John? I I missed the last part with Russell. I know he was asking me a question, but I couldn't quite make it out. Did Did you catch it? John, yeah, if, if you thought Russell someone was, was involved saying, in the assassination of uh, Malcolm X, but I didn't catch the name. Yeah, John yeah. was, uh, what Russell was asked, he was asking um, you, John, about do you believe that Louis Farrakhan was partly responsible for the death of Malcolm X? All right. So we're having a little bit of technical difficulty here, but uh, as far as who actually killed Malcolm X, a lot of evidence has since come out uh, that it was uh, members of the Nation of Islam affiliated with the mosque over in Newark. In particular, uh, one man, uh, William Bradley, who uh, was F- certainly an FBI asset, uh, informant, uh, we don't exactly know. But when Muhammad Aziz and two others were convicted in 1966, uh, this came while the FBI was really protecting uh, William Bradley who later was tied uh, to the shooting at the Audubon uh, ballroom. Um, you know, Amba, uh, speaking of uh, prisoners and hostages of a, a slightly different sort. Well, I want to address actually Russell's um, first okay. 
portion quickly if, if yeah, we please um about if we're gonna you know pub- publish what's go this some of the news that's being revealed around you know idf being responsible for some of the deaths of the israelis on october 7th i, I don't think that we're going to cover that in our upcoming issue but i will let people know that there is some substantial stuff around that from haaretz actually itself um the an Israeli uh, uh, so uh, outlet that's you know more more a, a better outlet there and um, also the gray zone news you know with Max Blumenthal I know that he's um, a controversial character but much of the stuff that he finds is is you know then um, corroborated by other outlets. Um, and, uh, I will say, you know, that, uh, you know, IDF kills many of, uh, it, it, they have a, a, a protocol that they can kill Israelis if there is, um, if that, if they're, if they're at them, risk of being taken hostage. They're at risk of being taken hostage, exactly. Yeah, it's called the, but also, and, and I'm not here to say which is right or wrong. You know, Hamas definitely did massacre some people i would not go as far to promote the claim that it was like this claim going around that it was all um idf and and that hamas only killed the um the idf soldiers themselves but idf stuff is definitely coming out that they shot down some people during the um festival and i did just say that on air but just look it up on harats in the gray zone let's move on we have four more minutes right so uh, one one thing we 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 skip past a little bit is a story you've been following uh, uh, with a man named uh, Wayne uh, Gardine talking about somebody who's uh, been behind bars for a long time uh, unjustly. Uh, you you want to give us an uh, update about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll, I'll give a quick update from this, and then we're going to get to hear from Wayne, which is uh, really uh, exciting. So uh, Wayne Gardine was 20 in 1994 when he was charged with a murder that he did not commit um, due to, frankly, sloppy and racist detectives, which were common back then um, and maybe now. So just yesterday, Legal Aid New York, with the support of Families for Freedom, a, a great um, sort of group that supports immigrants and others, secured the exoneration of Gardine by D.A. Bragg, um, and they did a great job in that, but a great injustice is continuing to occur, which is that Gardine is still behind bars. He is up in Buffalo Detention Center with a pending deportation order, and when he was supposed to be released on parole around five years ago, he instead was sent to ICE detention. This often occurs to immigrants that are... um, that are locked up and they think that that on their day of release that they are going to go home. Instead, they find out that day that they're being bused to ICE detention indefinitely waiting a deportation order where conditions are often worse than in prison. So we, collectively, many people are fighting to have ICE release a guardine. And I just want to say that none of this, the the exoneration, anything would have happened without the extreme effort of guardine himself, who for decades has been fighting for his release. And it takes such a tremendous amount of effort and resolve to be behind bars, to you know, to be locked up and making calls and being rejected and ignored for decades and finally breaking through. So let's go to a you were one of the reporters he called and you stayed in touch with him. I was. He reached out to us and I was like, you know what? I, you know, I think it's really important that we report, we report what's going on on the inside, but we don't have much time. And I want to finish with Gardine. You know, let's go to him. This is him today, just like two hours ago, talking to me on the phone. Listen up, turn your radio up. It's creamy right now, right? Like I said, like 10 minutes ago, 
10 minutes ago, about 10 ICE officers and lieutenant went to cell 211, tried to get him to move. He refused to come out his cell, so they opened up the cell, and I observed that officer hit him in his face with a shield, and they all run out of the cell and locked by the cell. In 10 minutes ago, the guy started crying that he got his bleeding, and they took him out his cell. I witnessed it, another guy witnessed it. It's an injustice going on in this facility. There is nobody here that cares, that cares, that declares. You know, I was exonerated yesterday, and I'm still in ICE facility. Nobody cares about ingrain. It's an injustice that's happening to immigrants in this whole American society. Nobody owns America. We are human beings. And we should have the right to live where we want to live. It's racism, prejudice that driving justice against immigrants. Everybody in this country has an immigrant relative. And it's an injustice been going on in Buffalo, federal, detention, facility, every single day. There are double banking inmates in cell that they can't breathe, no windows, locking in their cell for 19 hours a day. And a lot of injustice be going on. Okay, that was uh, Wayne Gardine speaking earlier today uh, with the Indies Amba Gagarian from the ICE Detention Center in Buffalo, New York. We're going to have to wrap it up for today's show. Thank you to our board operator, Reggie Johnson. Uh, we'll be back the same time next week. Amba, what's our final song for the night? Another song by Feiruz, Zahra al Madain, our Flowers of the City, Feiruz, famous Arab singer, Lebanese, uh, Lebanese Christian that was super pro Palestine. Let's go to her. <laughs> <laughs> 